I want to uh, invite you to join with me as we turn to the Gospel of Luke chapter 16. We were actually here last weekend. I dealt with the uh, parable of the rich man, poor man, but I thought it would be good to deal with an earlier parable that Jesus shares just prior to this. And so uh, Luke 16, chapter 1, or chapter uh, 16, verses 1 through 15, is what I'd like us to look at today. Would you stand with me as we prepare to receive God's word? Would you pray this prayer? Lord, this is your word to me today. May it be a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Help me to hide this word in my heart that I might not sin against you. May I pray it in, read it through, and live it out. Pass it on. Amen. Amen. Verse 1, Jesus says this. Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will come welcome me into their houses. So he called in each of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 450. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with, with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. May God add his blessing to that word. You can be seated. Well, as I said, I, last week we dealt with the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. But this morning, I, I want to discuss this parable that Jesus actually shares just prior to sharing that parable. And this is called the parable of the shrewd manager. And this parable kind of strikes me and maybe you as a little difficult to comprehend and understand. What is this parable really about? It's kind of difficult to swallow because Jesus, in fact, seems to be commending a man who is obviously dishonest. 
Why is such a shyster used as a positive example? But I think the truth is, if we get a little closer and we do some investigating, we can begin to understand the point that Jesus is making here concerning our heart and our attitude toward the kingdom of God. Jesus says a, a manager of an estate was embezzling money from his owner. Now, that we can understand. We've heard stories like that. They're as old as time. The owner suspected that something was going on, and so he calls for an audit. Again, that's easy to comprehend. No problem there. The manager then realizes that, that, that he's in deep trouble. He's about to be exposed, and so he puts his imagination to work, and, and, and before he was fired, and he acts quickly to save his own skin. And so he called in one of his master's debtors who owed him 800 gallons of oil, and he says, if you'll pay up right now, I'll give you about a 50% discount, and I'll write across your bill, paid in full. Then he called in another debtor who owed his master a thousand bushels of grain, and he offered him a 20% discount on his bill if he would just pay up right then immediately. Well, the debtors, of course, took this advantage gladly, uh, the discount, and even though they probably recognize this is a little shady, it wasn't on the up and up, they go ahead and sign and give the money. What I think we miss here, however, is when we read this, the manager's motive is most likely to gain friends so that he would immediately have somebody to rely on if and when he was fired. His plan was rather shrewd. By falsifying the records, he figured out he would gain the gratitude of those debts that had just been forgiven, have some chips to call in, and, well, he might have to squeal if the sweetheart deal didn't work out for him in the future. So there were a lot of things going on here. But what's really hard for me to understand and what I really had to wrestle with for a while here as I thought about this is the reaction of the owner, the master. What we probably need to recognize then is that the owner here does not represent God. A lot of us, when Jesus reads or tells us these stories, the master tends to represent God, but that's not the case here. He's just another character in the parable. And when the owner learns of the plot, instead of getting uh, angry and reacting that way, he just kind of shrugs his shoulders as he learns what this man has done. And with a cynical grin, he commends the steward for the shrewd way of handling his business. So what you need to understand is everybody in this parable is corrupt. The manager is dishonest, systematically stealing from the owner. The, the debtors are dishonest. They took advantage of a shady deal. And the owner, who is a worldly rascal himself, is able to appreciate a shifty transaction even when he knows that he's the victim of it. One of my favorite movies ever 
my, probably in the top three, to be honest with you, is a movie called Dirty Rotten Scoundrels uh, from uh, 1988. How many of you have seen that movie? Okay, well, good, good. I, I'm in good company here. Michael Caine and, and Steve Martin are part of this group, and it, it's, 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 it's an old movie, so it's been around a while, but the movie is about two shysters who scam women and widows out of substantial sums of money. It was one of those movies, when I saw it for the very first time, I, 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 it delighted me because it surprised me. I didn't see it coming. I should have seen it coming, but I didn't. And, and I'm sorry to be a spoiler here, but it was 1988, so if you haven't seen it yet, it's your fault. But the, but the movie plot turns when you realize that one of the women who seems to be so innocent and vulnerable to their scam is actually scamming them. And so these two men, after realizing how they have been taken in and their money is literally flying off with her, look at that plane as it's flying away, and this is how they respond. Isn't she wonderful? They're just impressed. They're amazed at her skill. So impressed with her shrewdness. That, I think, is what's happening here. He appreciates a good con. So Jesus tells us and makes the point here in verse 8. He says, the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of light. Now, listen, he is not approving then of the behavior of this manager. He's not going and saying, well, well, if you scam somebody, you know, you got to cover it up. No. He's just pointing out that the people of the world are often more committed to worldly things, making money, deals, getting ahead, than Christians are committed to the kingdom of God and the things of God's kingdom. And so Jesus here is appealing to his followers to have the same kind of devotion in building up the kingdom of God as the people of this world do with their schemes. Does that make sense? You know, as a pastor, I kind of see this attitude work out in a couple of ways that I think are at least significant. One is there are some people who work in the quote-unquote real world who think of ministry in the church as soft and cushioned and easy job that can hardly be compared to true work. Sometimes I, I, I get the impression that some people think, well, ministry is nice. Maybe it's uh, even noble, perhaps, but it's not really very important, and it's not really relevant. And, and this comes out in another way. Some people think that if their work in the church is volunteer, then they can kind of fudge a little on their commitment to it. We can do it half-heartedly. Again, it's really not all that important in the scale of things. And if we're not careful, right in the church, we can be careless and sloppy, and it's no big deal if we don't show up when we said we would or we really don't prepare for that assignment. What this parable is actually doing is appealing for us to give our very best effort 
to God's kingdom. He's worth it. Whether we are opening doors on a Sunday morning as people come in or we're, we're leading a small group or we're singing in the choir or we're being a part of the usher team on a Sunday morning, we need to do that to the very best of our ability because it's for God. God deserves our very best. It should not be that the people of this world will do more for money and gain than we will do for the kingdom of God. That's the point Jesus is making. It comes down to exposing what we really love. So Jesus is saying, sometimes bad people will do bad things very well. But we as the followers of Jesus Christ should do good things to the very best of our ability too. Now, I, I thought then as I looked at this parable and began to unravel it, I realized, you know, there are some things then that maybe we ought to learn from this manager that are, are, are ironically admirable if you think about it. And I just want to give you four things to think about. There are probably more, but I want to give you four things that I thought of when I look at this man that I think maybe we can use it as a, an instruction to each of us. First, I want you to notice that he was perceptive. He was perceptive. He knew what his problem was. Before he was about to be fired, he saw it coming. He said, you know, I'm in trouble. <laughs> Some people live in denial. They put their head in the sand. They refuse to, to name what's really going on, and they pretend that everything's going to just be okay. But notice here that this man didn't pretend at all. He knew what was going on. He knew he was going to be in trouble down the road. It, it's kind of one of the things I think I most appreciate about what God is doing at our Elyria campus. You know, the former leadership, the, the, the beautiful Mennonite leadership of that church perceived rightly where that congregation was heading. They understood and foresaw that if something doesn't change dramatically here, we're going to be completely shut down and the gospel presence that we intended to see here and this place was dedicated for is going to to come to an end. And they were willing to set up a system and by, you know, by calling us and inviting us to join in a partnership with them that would give them the possibility of flourishing again. They, they didn't stick their head in the sand. They were perceptive. They saw what was ahead. This man knew the clock was ticking. He saw what was ahead. He knew boy, you know what? I, I'm not a laborer. I can't go dig uh, ditches here. My hands are too soft. I'm too old. I don't want to do it. And I'm not a beggar. I'm too proud to do that. But there's one thing that I excel in. That's finances. And so that's where I'll, I'll, I'll give my attention. And so he's perceptive and he analyzes and plans out a strategy. Now, you may disagree with the strategy, but he knows what he's doing. Jesus says here, the church deserves our perception. We must be more perceptive in God's kingdom than the world is. And so when it comes to finances, for instance, 
We ought to plan out our way very carefully. We ought to anticipate and project and understand what's ahead. You know, one of the things I realize is, you know, not everyone has every gift, and I am a, a pastor who has maybe a few specific ministry gifts, but one of the gifts I think I have, at least that I hope has benefited our church to some extent over these years, and, and not every pastor has this gift, but I have a gift, I think, dealing with finances and understanding and being able to project things out. For instance, our offerings took a significant dip in May and June, and I saw that, and some of our finance people saw that, and we were alerted to, we weren't quite sure what was happening, but it was real. And so I presented a five-pronged strategy to our board of elders and, and concern and saying, this is what I think we need to do. You may, as a part of that, have received a letter describing the concern we had. I just want you to know, and, and God gets the glory here, but I also want to give you some appreciation too, and we'll certainly hear more about this at the congregational meeting in a few weeks, but I suspect, and, and you guys, if, if, if giving stops today, this changes everything, but I suspect we will be running in the black operationally by the end of this month. I just find that to be incredible. And, and, and the reason I want to just point that out is because that's, that's you, your generosity, your willingness to be a part of this. And, and yeah, we had to let you know, and, and, but so many of you stepped up and said, I'm going to be a part. I want to help things out. And we also made some adjustments and trying to save on some things. But a great church has perspective on what is happening and where we're going, and it adjusts and figures things out accordingly. Now, it's not just finances. Trends, how we deal with people, what's happening in the culture at large, we need to be perceptive of what's going on in the world outside of this church. By the way, it doesn't mean that we don't take risks because we're perceiving where things are going. Sometimes you perceive where things are going and you say, oh man, let's, let's just shut it down. But we do take risks, but we are never more, you know, as a church, never more than about six to eight weeks from shutting things down when it comes to finances. But we feel like that's where we need to be. But God expects us to exercise our minds and be aware of potential problems. Listen, we need more perceptive people in our church who are willing to step up. Some of you in this place, you have keen minds. You're good at finances, or you're good at understanding the culture at large. You, you're good at leadership and can help people get where we need to be. And I just want to report to you that God needs your leadership today in the kingdom of God. And some of you have some incredible gifts that you use in the world. Jesus says, why aren't you using those in my kingdom? the gift of perception. The second thing that I see about this man is that he is creative. <laughs> he cleverly devises this innovative strategy to survive. Jesus is saying here, it seems to me, in the church, we ought to be creative and innovative too. You know, I, I serve, uh, again, this goes back to some of my gifting, but I serve as our chairman, uh, our denomination's chairman for finance and administration. 
And uh, one of our responsibilities as a team is when, for instance, a church does close, we are to, to dispose of the property and then sell the proceeds or, or sell the property so that the, and use the proceeds to plant other churches. Well, about four years ago, a friend's church in Rhode Island closed. It was an historic church, and uh, we were sad to see its demise. Certainly, we had worked uh, as a denomination to try to uh, do some things there. It just didn't take. But we began the process then under our, uh, under our team to, to sell the property as necessary, and it was worth in excess of a million dollars. However, wouldn't you know, a former pastor who had been fired from the church years before with a small group of people apparently used his old key, broke into the church, changed the locks, and locked us out. Well, for a few months, we tried to engage. We tried to meet with uh, the, uh, the pastor and the folks and work something out. Of course, we were paying the utilities and we were paying the insurance and a lot of the upkeep, but we couldn't sell with these squatters on the property. It was just kind of a mess. But we never got to meet with them because they refused. And every time we tried to make these inroads, it just never happened. And our only option would have been to go to court. Well, that would have involved a whole lot of money, and guess who would have won that? The lawyers, right? And certainly, the church's reputation would have been certainly hurt and devastated, whoever was there. So we prayed about it, and we just gave up the property. We said, you can have it. And our hope was is that these folks would have a genuine opportunity to establish a Jesus presence there. And if that happened, praise God. You know, <laughs> if you go to the website of that church this morning, again, on a website, just get to Jesus. Tell, tell people what you really are all about. That's what you want to do as an introduction to the community. But right now, on the front page of this of that church, this is how they introduce themselves. This is what they say they want you to know about their church. I'm not going to name the name because I want to protect the guilty here. But listen to this. Welcome to Blank Friends Church. Okay. The Blank Friends Meeting House, Parsonage and Cemetery, also known as Blank Friends Meeting House or Blank Friends Church. Okay. Got that squared away is an historic friends meeting house and cemetery of the Religious Society of Friends at 11 Middle Road, Portsmouth, Rhode Island. The church reopened in 2020 after a long legal battle over ownership of the building. Its faithful members regained control of the church and have kept the church going, which is currently holding services on Sunday at 10.30 a.m. So, you know, join us, because we have control. We won the legal battle, which there was no legal battle whatsoever. And it just, I think, then they go on and talk about, and, and maybe, I hope these aren't just sour grapes, but it seems like, then they talk about how much they need for money for the roof and the, the windows. And, and I'm thinking, when do we get to Jesus? So much,
much of the world sees us like that, how have we missed the mark? We can't be more creative and innovative and recognize what is it that will draw people to the one we've come to know? The third thing I want you to notice about this man is he was decisive. He was not just a person of words and dreams. He, he weighed his options, and he made a decision. He said, this is what I'm going to do, and he did it. And I realize that good leaders make decisions. One of the things I have learned since I became pastor here, and I was only 25 when I came here, but sometimes a decision is better than no decision at all. Indecision often leaves you listless and paralyzed and questioning. It is sometimes easier, in fact, to recover from a bad decision than it is to develop a culture where we just can't make a decision, we can't move forward, we don't do anything. Sometimes, yeah, we have to admit we blew it, we made a mistake, and reverse ourselves if necessary. But indecision immobilizes us and causes discontent and disrespect and loss of, of energy. How many times have you seen a football team? And by the way, did you see Ohio State pull it off yesterday? Just, just mentioning. How many times have you seen a football team? It's fourth and one. They get in the huddle. The coach is trying to figure out what play to put in. If play comes in at the end, it's up the middle, set a screen, whatever it is, but suddenly the whistle blows and it's a five-yard penalty for a delay of game or maybe a false start. Indecision can be costly. I heard about a couple who were 93 years old that filed for divorce. They'd been married for 70 years. The lawyers asked them why they were filing divorce for divorce after 70 years, and they said, well, we've never really been happy, but we didn't want to hurt our children's feelings, so we waited until they died. <laughs> I'm not really sure why I told you that. I thought it would come into the, but I just found that to be almost funny. It's sad, but I thought it was funny, too. Can I say this this morning? Listen, if you're a Christian, make a decision to follow Jesus wholeheartedly. Not half, not some, everything. The Bible says we're not supposed to put our hand to the plow and look back. But once we put our hand to the plow, we, we, we move forward. But there are a number of people, and I know that how easy is this is to, to look over our shoulders and think, eh, maybe the world is having a little more fun, wondering what we're missing out on because we've decided to follow Christ. And as a result, we're, we're like the Civil War soldier who wears blue pants and a gray coat and gets shot at from both sides. On Mount Carmel, Elijah said, how long are you going to vacillate between 
two options. If Jehovah is God, then, then follow him and worship him. And if Baal is God, follow him, worship him. But get off the fence. There are some people maybe in this room. It's time for you to decide. It's time for you to make a decision about your faith. Do you know Jesus? Have you put your faith and trust in him? And if you've done so, does he have your whole heart? Not a half heart. Not halfway. Jesus said, be hot, be hot or be cold, but don't be lukewarm because I'll spew you out of my mouth. The final thing I, I want you to notice about this man is that he was energetic. He was a man of action. Not just a planner. He wasn't afraid of work. He made the contacts. He made the appointments. He, he followed through. When it comes to making money, the people of this world can be very industrious and diligent. Why aren't we giving our best? Let me ask you, if you were paid for your responsibility in the church, how much would you make? Would you put forth a better effort? If you were given a bonus at the end of the year, according to how many Sundays you attended worship, how would you do? Would you be here more often? If everybody who showed up on Wednesday night was given a crisp $100 bill when they walked in the door, would that motivate you to come back? If you got a gift card to Panera's for bringing a friend to church, would then you'd be more evangelistic. You see, we ought to be the kind of people who are willing to do more for the kingdom of God than we would ever do for money. Jesus told another parable in Matthew about a man who discovered a treasure in the field. He says he went out and he sold everything he had so he could buy that field and have that treasure. It was worth everything to him. Listen, if you have found forgiveness of sin, if you have found a relationship with God and that relationship is growing, and if you appreciate the community of his church that he's given you, then his kingdom deserves the very best effort you can give. Not just a little. The very best. I love this story. Neil Lightfoot tells the story of a wealthy oil tycoon who went to the, visit a missionary in India. He worked uh, or saw the missionary in action and in the middle of the slums, the missionary is on his knees binding up a regularly uh, or a repulsively ugly wound of a leper. Imagine the scene. The tycoon has to look away. He's almost nauseated by what he saw. And as he turned away in disgust, he said, you know, I wouldn't do that for a million dollars. And the missionary looked at him and thought for a moment, and he said, sir, you know, neither would I. Neither would I. 
What's the difference? I've fallen in love. When it came to giving, God gave his very best. He gave his only begotten son. He came to earth. He died for your sins. And if you've experienced that, he asks you to give your best in return. And by the way, if you've not accepted Christ as your personal Savior, then I ask you to give him the best of your life today and say yes to the gift that he offers. Would you pray with me? Father, I, I recognize that sometimes I don't give you my very best. I hold back. Forgive me. I pray, Lord, that you would move in such a way in our church that we would be confronted with how much you've given us and our only response would be, Lord, you can have it all. It all belongs to you. Every dollar, every minute, every thought, every motive, it's all yours. I pray, Lord, that you would teach us how to live a life in such a way that we would not hold back that we would go beyond what the world does and we would see the joy in serving you not out of guilt but because we've fallen in love we've come to know what it is to walk with you we've come to perceive your heart for the hurting and the lost we've come to recognize how much we've been given and what an opportunity while we have breath to make a difference in this world Lord, if there is someone here today who needs to say yes to a saving relationship with you, I pray, Lord, they would indeed do that. And they might tell a friend or maybe this pastor and say, today, Jeff, I made a decision for Christ. And I promise to follow him with my whole heart. I pray this, Lord, in your precious and glorious name. Amen.